Good morning, church. Let me just take you in for a moment because it is so good to be back with you. You know, I'm grateful that you're a congregation that allows your staff to be away for what I like to call extended Sabbath. Extended Sabbath is a good thing, but not as good as coming home. And I'm grateful beyond words that you are such such a substantial part of the home to which I get to return. It's good to be with you this morning. So in the summer after my uh, senior year of high school, shortly after I graduated, I had a summer job at the Robinson Lytle Funeral Home in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Do you know where that is, Rosella? You've been there? I might have parked your car. That, uh, who knows? I, um, but I had a number of responsibilities. Uh, I, I'm talking to Rosella because Rosella comes from Apollo, Pennsylvania, which is about half an hour away from where I graduated from high school. And here we are in New York City connecting it. We had to come all the way to New York City to find one another. Uh, but I had this summer job at the Robinson Lytle Funeral Home in Indiana, Pennsylvania. And one day, the funeral director and I traveled to the hospital morgue for the purpose of picking up the body of a 67-year-old man who had died of natural causes. And back at the funeral home, as we gently placed the body on the embalming table, I noticed right away that this man's arms and legs were completely covered with tattoos. Not just image tattoos, but words, phrases, sentences, numbers, dates. It was as though this man had attempted to record portions of his life's pilgrimage on his various appendages. But on his torso, there were no tattoos at all except for one. In the center of his chest, there was a tattoo of a small red heart, bright red, with a fracture in it. The fracture or is the tattoo of a broken heart. And underneath that broken heart, there was a single word in the center of his chest in bold black letters. That word was this. Worthless. We held a uh, small graveside service for this man at one of the local cemeteries. It was officiated by a local Roman Catholic priest who had never met the man, but the man identified, had identified as Roman Catholic. He had a couple of friends in the community who came to that small graveside service, as did those of us who worked in the funeral home. But apart from that, no one else was in attendance. There were no surviving family members identified, no one we could contact. And that day, and I won't ever forget it, but that day, as the casket was being lowered into the ground, I found myself thinking back to that tattoo that I'd seen. Worthless. And as an 18-year-old, I began to wonder, had that man died believing that evaluation of himself? Had he died believing that his life was somehow insignificant, meaningless? And had he been so thoroughly convinced of the rightness of that self-evaluation that he felt compelled to tattoo an image of it on his chest so that every morning he could wake up, look in the mirror, and remind himself of just how worthless he was. It would not surprise me if it had been that way. For that man, I'm sad to say, it would not have surprised me because my personal conviction 
is that this world in which we live, and sometimes, this is the hard part, sometimes even the churches in which we worship, for reasons that I cannot fully comprehend, are often frighteningly eager to assign to persons what I have come to call the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, the weight of worthlessness. Or if that's too strong of a word on this Sunday morning, if that's too sweeping a concept, allow me to put it this way. My experience tells me that we never have to look very far either in the world or the church to find people to find people who feel less than valued, less than recognized, less than beloved, less than significant, for a variety of different reasons. Over the years, I have met plenty of wealthy people who've articulated in one way or another, ironically, that they have been made to feel worthless in the isolation of their wealth. In fact, One person I know said it this way years ago. Would anybody care about me as a person if I didn't represent a substantial donation to their cause every year? Would anybody care about me as a person? And he went on to tell me how long it had been since he had been asked a personal question. Likewise, I've met plenty of poor people who feel worthless in the profundity of their poverty. And yes, I've met plenty of people who live somewhere between financial wealth and financial poverty who've been made to feel wealthy because they have rehearsed in their own mind false stories about their self-worth for so long that they've begun to embrace those false stories as their defining narrative. It may be the case, and I simply have to acknowledge this before we move on. It may be the case that you have found your way to this worship service on this holiday weekend so thoroughly burdened by a struggle or maybe half a dozen struggles that the weight of worthlessness does not feel at all like a foreign concept to you. And if that is at all the case, I hope that you will pay extra close attention to the scripture that we heard moments ago from Mark's gospel because I believe it to be a scripture that has much to say about the weight of worthlessness and more importantly it has much to say about the way in which Jesus responds to it. The weight of worthlessness. Apart from Jesus, the other character in the scripture that we heard from Mark is a worthless beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. Now, I describe him as worthless only because in the eyes of many in first century Palestine, that is exactly what he would have been. In the first place, he was a beggar, which meant he occupied the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder. That was bad enough, but he was also blind. And I ask you to imagine that kind of an existence for just a moment. Imagine sitting on the side of the road in the heat of the midday sun, unable to see the people walking past as you beg from them only able to hear their hurried footsteps as they shuffled past, pretending not to notice that he was there. We know what that's like. Bartimaeus might as well have had it tattooed on his chest, in fact, or maybe even his forehead. Why not? Worthless. 
because in the eyes of so many, that's exactly what he would have been. And the theological weight that people would have attached to that in terms of how they would have interpreted his life, perhaps even as a curse from God, how that impacted his relationship with the faith community. And if you're connected to a faith community, you know how important that is and how painful it is when it is not there. That was Bartimaeus' life. And one day, Bartimaeus overhears. And can't you imagine that this man had gotten quite proficient at the work of overhearing information? But he overhears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming to town. And in my imagination, I always picture Bartimaeus' heart beginning to race just a little bit when he hears that word. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth? I've heard some things about that man. I've heard that he performs miracles. I've heard that he heals people. Maybe I can get him to look my way for just a few minutes. Maybe I can get him to take mercy on my plight. What do I have to lose? And so Jesus comes to town surrounded by a crowd of people, we are told, an important detail. Surrounded by a crowd of people. And when Bartimaeus senses that he's within some kind of an earshot, he cries out into the air, Jesus, son of David, a biblical theological term. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. How does the crowd respond? That's such an important detail in the story. Does the crowd encourage this desperate man? Do they advocate for his cause? Not quite. Here's how the crowd responds. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Shut up. And doesn't that response resonate with authenticity? Is, doesn't that kind of an effort to silence a desperate voice, doesn't that so frequently reflect the way in which the crowd responds to the people that the crowd determines are less than valuable? The poor, the addicted, the inconvenient, the immigrant, the person who holds a viewpoint contrary to the perspective we prefer. I suppose that Bartimaeus stands for all of these persons in this morning's scripture. And the various crowds to which we are connected, the various crowds to which we are connected often respond to such persons with the same kind of response that the crowd offered to Bartimaeus by trying to silence a desperate voice. Shut up, Bartimaeus. Quit trying to bother our good friend Jesus. Stick to your begging on the side of the road. It's where you belong. And what I love about the story is that Bartimaeus refuses to be silenced. And that's sometimes what justice demands. A refusal to be silenced. A refusal to speak anything less than truth. And so he cries out in the face of an angry crowd. He cries out even more loudly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And at that point, in one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture, do you know what happens? Jesus stands still. Simple detail, right? He stops. But I love it. I love that detail because think about the scenario. Scripture gives us the details. Don't miss them. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd, and we know what crowds are like. We know that what the crowds were like that surrounded Jesus. They were crying out for healing. They were making noise. They were crying out for teaching. They were crying out for some sort of theological clarification about the nature of God. Noise. 
And in the midst of that noise, Jesus stands still to tune into the pleas of a beggar on the side of the road. And if you don't think that that indicates something significant about the character of our God, then I don't think you're paying adequate attention to what it is that this scripture reveals. If the fullness of God dwells in this Jesus, then a Jesus who stops for a desperate cry on the side of the road reflects the heart of a God who stops even 2,000 years later, a God who stops for desperate cries, cries for justice, cries for healing, cries for deliverance, cries for mercy. He stops, he stands still, and he says, bring that man over here, I'd like to see him face to face. Then the crowd changes, right? Oh, okay, let's, let's get this man over to Jesus. And when the two men are face to face, Jesus doesn't make small talk according to scripture, he gets to the heart of the matter. What is it that you want me to do for you? And you have to think that at this point, the interaction has gone way beyond where Bartimaeus thought it was going to go. And I'm sure he wasn't expecting such a direct question. And so I love the honesty with which he responds. He responds presumably with the first thing that comes to his mind. Well, teacher, that's a great question, but I guess I'd answer it this way. I sure would love to be able to see again. And in that moment, in my imagination, Jesus smiles. Imagination is important. The text doesn't tell us that Jesus smiles. But in my imagination, he smiles and he responds with this, well then go, your faith has made you well. And then we are told that immediately, and that word immediately, if you read Mark's gospel, appears all the time. It's a word that the gospel writer uses to communicate the urgency of God's inbreaking kingdom. Immediately, Bartimaeus regains his sight and he begins to follow Jesus on the way. Oh. It's a dramatic story, and sometimes the problem with dramatic stories is that we focus on the wrong kind of drama. And it's so easy for the church to become, I guess I'll use this word, fixated on Bartimaeus' physical cure, because it's impressive, let's be honest, blindness to sight. It's easy for the church to become fixated on the physical cure. But I'll remind you of something that you've heard me say before about other healing stories. Bartimaeus' physical cure is not the lasting miracle in this, in this story. It's not the most transformational and trajectory-altering miracle in this story. Because let's be honest with one another. Bartimaeus' eyes will eventually become unclear once again as he ages. It's the nature of a physical cure. It's transitory in, in nature. It only lasts until the next ailment physically comes along. That is why I say the physical cure that Bartimaeus experiences, while it might bring him into the goodness of what God can do, it's not the lasting miracle. And I think you know that as well as I do. The lasting miracle in this story, the miracle that counts, the miracle that stays with Bartimaeus even now, I think, is that for the first time in a long time, maybe for the very first time in his difficult life, Bartimaeus personhood was valued. His narrative was honored and his voice was heard even above the maddening loudness of the crowd, which is to say the greatest and most lasting miracle of the story 
in this encounter between Jesus and Bartimaeus, the lasting miracle is Bartimaeus' recognition that in the reign of God, inaugurated in the person of Jesus, nobody is worthless. Nobody is expendable. Nobody slips through the cracks. Not even the Bartimaeuses of this world, and thanks be to God, friends, not even us. Why? Well, because the reign of God is this spiritual realm. It's this spiritual realm in which the love of Jesus Christ has been poured out so prodigiously that there's enough of it to flow into every single soul in such a way that every single soul becomes pricelessly valuable in the countercultural economy of God's scandalous grace. And if that truth does not have an impact on the way in which you view and value yourself today, that I would encourage you to rehearse that truth. Rehearse it over and over again until it becomes something personal for you. And furthermore, if that truth does not have a significant impact on the way in which you view and value other persons, then I would encourage you this week to read and reread this story of the encounter between Jesus and Bartimaeus simply for the purpose of making certain that your heart is more aligned with the Savior who stops for Bartimaeus than it is with the crowd who attempted to silence his voice. I had the experience, the honor, really, of participating in the pride service that was held right here in the sanctuary on Thursday evening. My first of those here at Christ Church. And following the service, someone I had never met, a young man whose countenance, I would say, bore witness to both the pain and the healing that he had experienced over his life's journey, said something remarkable to me. Please, he said with this urgency, I'm begging you, don't ever stop offering services like these in your church's ministry. Because tonight, he said, for the first time in a long time, during Holy Communion, I felt like a family member at the table and not a tolerated controversy. And I interpret that to be the authentic gratitude of a desperate soul who on Thursday evening, right here in this sanctuary, was sweetly reminded of his beautiful, sacred worth. Less than 15 hours later, I was back in the sanctuary with some of you for the graduation service for the 32 children who have completed a three-year relationship with Nida de Esperanza, Nest of Hope. And if you're new to our church, you might not know much about Nida de Esperanza. And there's a whole story to be told about that for our purposes. Suffice it to say that Nida de Esperanza is um, a ministry connected to our church that is absolutely committed, absolutely committed to nurturing and equipping children and families during the first three years of a child's life. It's an amazing ministry. 
And on Friday morning right here, we were able to experience or celebrate 32 of those children and families who've completed that three-year process, that three-year journey. And following the graduation service downstairs, and Phillips Hall was beautifully decorated, and downstairs we had a reception. It was during that reception, after lunch, when I was making my way around the room, there was a little three-year-old girl still wearing her graduation cap, sitting with her family. And at one point, she put her arms in the air. Beautiful dress. She put her arms in the air. And she proceeded to repeat what her older brother and her parents had been trying to get her to say all morning long. And this is what she was repeating over and over again. Soy valiosa. Soy valiosa. Translation, I am valuable. I am worthy. And I thought to myself right away, absolutely, exactly. That's what I desperately want the church's children to come to understand about themselves in Jesus Christ. I want them to understand that they are worthy to be loved and respected. I want them to understand that in Jesus, they are pricelessly valuable in God's mind-boggling grace and its economy. On this weekend, as our nation reflects upon its past for the purpose of celebrating its birth, I cannot think of a more meaningful gift for the church to offer to our nation than for the church's people to devote themselves afresh to the reconfiguring economy of Jesus Christ. An economy in which nobody is worthless. Nobody is expendable. Nobody slips through the cracks. Not even the blind Bartimaeuses of this world, and thanks be to God. Not even us. Amen. Amen.